This morning we have the privilege of looking into the Word of God once again. Will you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 91? I've entitled my discourse to you, My God in Whom I Trust. Before we look at the text, I wish to address a few issues that hopefully will help frame our time together this morning. Between the great distresses of this Wuhan virus pandemic and the God-hating abominations of the new administration that are being forced down the throats of the American people, those who love Christ and long for his glory to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, find themselves in great distress. No authentic Christian would ever endorse the platform of the Democratic Party that is bent on outlawing righteousness and biblical morality. Their abortion and LGBTQ agenda alone is enough to cause any true believer to recoil. Their obsession with gender identity and transgenderism is such a clear indication of what happens at the end of Romans 1 when people are given over to a depraved mind. It's sheer insanity. Add to this their endorsement of things like critical race theory and their appeasement of domestic terrorists like the Antifa people and the racist Black Lives Matter people and on and on it goes. We, we just shake our heads in dismay. And some ostensibly evangelical Christians have bought into the heretical social justice gospel that sees people as victims rather than sinners. And as a result, rather than helping people see that they are depraved, they want them to see that they're deprived. And so the whole focus begins to center around sinful man being reconciled to sinful man rather than sinful man being reconciled to a holy God. So many churches today are all about redeeming the culture and reparations and white privilege and remedying social injustice, all of those kinds of things. Can you imagine Jesus and his disciples looting and burning and carrying around a banner that says, Jews' lives matter? By the way, if you're a listener and you attend a, quote, woke church, where liberals feel comfortable, you need to run, not walk away from that apostate system. And many of these heretics today are calling for Christians to somehow unite with this new administration. Folks, that is just utterly absurd. The mentality of compromise and appeasement 
is utterly foreign to Scripture, hoping that somehow cultural Marxists will reward us by maybe just leaving us alone. It reminds me of what Winston Churchill once said, quote, an appeaser is one who feeds a crocodile hoping it will eat him last. There's no appeasing these people. Why would we unite behind people who mock God? Why would we join those who are under the wrath of God? I want to say that to them what James said in chapter 4, verse 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And Paul said in Ephesians 5.11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Paul also reminds us in his words to the saints at Corinth, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Beloved, we are called to come out and to be separate from them for the glory of Christ, not to unite with them. We must preach against them. We must never bow to their blasphemies. We must pray that God will save them by his grace, but also pray that God will frustrate the plans of the wicked and protect us from them. I have great sorrow for the people in this new administration and all of the leftists that support their deceptions and their murders and their gross immoralities and idolatry. Paul said in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And we see that wrath occurring right now as God abandons our country to the consequences of its sin. They have no idea the divine judgment that awaits them. And I grieve over that. Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul speaks of those who because of their stubbornness and unrepentant heart are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You know, it's fascinating if you look into the Old Testament scriptures, you will see many prophecies concerning judgment upon Israel and Judah and other nations that mocked God. Many of those judgments have come to pass. Many of them are still yet future. But what is interesting is what God says at the end of those judgments, and you will read this repeatedly. He will say, so the nations, in other words, I am going to judge you, so the nations will know that I am the Lord. Beloved, today our country and the world does not know that God is the Lord, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord. 
That's the problem with our country. They do not know that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, the God that has revealed himself through the person and the work of his son, the Lord Jesus, and through his word and through his church. And as a result, we are seeing God's abandonment in America. And a day of judgment is coming upon our country as well as all of the nations of the world so that one day they will know that Yahweh is the Lord. The same is true for every individual, right? We read in Philippians 2 that a day is coming when in the name of Jesus every knee will bow. He goes on to say, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And while that day has not yet arrived, it certainly will. And he will judge the wicked for his name's sake, for the glory of his name. We read of this, for example, in Revelation 21, verse 8, the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's the bad news, right? Now that you're all depressed and frustrated, let me give you some good news. In case you're wringing your hands and pacing the floor and frustration and helplessness, hopelessness, may I remind you of some essential truths that I think will make your day. And that is basically this, God's sovereign purposes to redeem his elect and glorify himself especially through his church, cannot be thwarted by man or by devil, all right? You will recall that it was upon the rock of Peter's divinely wrought confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, in Matthew 16, 16, that Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Christ is going to continue to build his church, and beloved, there is absolutely nothing that any earthly ruler or government or demonic host can do to hinder that or to help it. So we can rejoice in that. Our political leaders are merely pagan pygmies who wield temporary power in this world, but ultimately Jesus is Lord put it more practically, the Biden administration has no more power to affect the purposes of God for his church than a pea shooter has to sink a battleship. So find comfort in that. I don't think you'll find that exact quote in the Bible, but you'll hear something like it, right? The real power, dear friends, is exerted in the prayer of the saints, the prayers of the saints and the word of God, what Paul called the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And he went on to say in Ephesians 6, 17 and 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. Beloved, a handful of godly saints on their knees on Sunday mornings before church in our little heating plant 
has more power than all the forces of hell because they serve the Most High God. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 10, for though we walk in the flesh, in other words, though we have human limitations, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And folks, that is our priority every Lord's Day morning, to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's why we go into the Word and allow the Spirit of God to speak to us. One more passage that I find so encouraging that I want to remind you about so that you will remember who we worship and who we serve and who is ultimately in charge. It's what Jesus said through his servant John in Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Then he says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That makes King Biden look pretty puny in comparison. So let's focus on the truth of who Christ is this morning, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And to do so, I want to draw your attention to Psalm 91, a magnificent psalm of encouragement that gives strength to weary believers and to fearful saints, exhorting us to trust in the Lord. Let me read the psalm to you, and then we'll unpack it a bit here this morning. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent, You will trample down, 
because he has loved me. Therefore, I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with a long life. I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. The author of Psalm 91 is anonymous. Psalm 91's background and setting is really unknown. There's reason to believe that perhaps Moses wrote it as he did Psalm 90. But certainly in verse 2, we see the theme of the psalm, my God in whom I trust. And beloved, here we are reminded of the rare benefits that belong to those who live in close fellowship with the living God, benefits that are not experienced by those who live far from him, which can include many believers. And I must ask you from the outset, is your private life marked by habitual communion with the living God? Do you have a hunger for the word of God? Are you disciplined in your practice of studying the word and applying it to your heart? Do you habitually reside in the presence of the Most High? Or do you just kind of show up for church on Sundays? Do you spend much time in the inner sanctuary of prayer, communing with the lover of your soul? Is that a passion of your heart? Do you dwell in the light of his glory by listening to and obeying his voice? Are you abiding in the fortress of his presence so that when the enemy assails you, you are not afraid? Are you able to persevere with joy even in the midst of great sorrow? If so, you are a rare saint. You are a specially blessed saint unlike those who only have a casual relationship with the one who longs for more. I think of the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.8. He said, I count all things to be loss in view of this, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. You see, those who have a secret devotion to God and literally live in his presence are never marked by debilitating fear and depression in times of danger, but somehow in the midst of it all, they have a consuming joy as they look forward to ultimately what the Lord will do with their life. And they enjoy a double portion of his blessings, even this side of glory. Now, as we look at this, I want us to investigate the psalm under three very simple headings. First of all, we will see the psalmist's trust. Secondly, the psalmist's exhortation. And then finally, the Lord's promise. So let's look first of all at the psalmist's trust in the first two verses. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. The terms shelter and shadow are figures de depicting protection and 
security. And frankly, this dominates the entire psalm. Shelter, setef in, in Hebrew, uh, can be translated hiding place. Sometimes it's translated in, in other versions as the secret place. In Psalm 27, verse 5, David says, In the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle in the, here it is, secret place of his tent. He will hide me. The secret place parallels tabernacle and tent. And later in verse 8, he talks about how he longs to see his face. You see, folks, that's always the mark of someone that's dwelling in the presence of the Most High. That person will be marked with a longing for fellowship with God. They will crave communion with the Lord and with other saints. They will love to worship Him. They will love to feast on His Word. And this is the person God protects. Psalm 31, verse 20, you hide them in the secret place. There it is again. The secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of man. You keep them secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues, he says. Beloved, please hear me. God himself protects those who dwell, who abide in him, who commune with him, who have a passionate insatiable appetite to hear his voice through his word and who obey his word and who therefore trust in him. As we read earlier, Jesus said, abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. It's the same concept. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Folks, if you're just living for yourself, as many cultural Christians do, and you have no intimate understanding of or walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have no commitment to personal holiness and obedience, then you are going to be vulnerable to the ravages of sin. You're not dwelling, you're not abiding in him, you're not walking by the Spirit, and therefore you're going to carry out the desires of the flesh rather than manifest the fruits of the Spirit. Well, in order to dwell and abide in this way, you must have an in intimate familiarity with who God really is. And that's why in the first two verses, we have four divine titles that the Spirit of God gives to his inspired writer. Because here we see that God and God alone is worthy of trust. He alone can provide complete security. You're not going to find that in a political party or political leaders or in the military or in doctors and hospitals, only in the Most High. Now I want you to notice the divine titles here that the inspired author uses. First of all, he describes God as the Most High, Elyon. It focuses on his sovereignty and his majesty over the whole world. Secondly, he calls him the Almighty, Shaddai. That emphasizes God's omnipotence, his absolute power over everything. And he's also called Lord, that's Yahweh, which represents God as the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God the eternal God. 
He is the great I am. He is the self-existent, pre-existent, uncreated creator of the universe. And he's also called God, Elohim, referring to the supreme God who is the creator, who rules over all of his universe and sovereign invincibility. Obviously, this is the one true and living God worthy of our trust. And as believers, we must understand this. And may I encourage you to become familiar with not just these, but many other names and titles of God and reverence them. You know, I cringe when I hear believers say, and I see this on some church websites, we want to make Jesus famous. I want to make Jesus famous. I mean, frankly, that betrays not only ignorance of Scripture, but a lack of reverence for him. Jesus did not come to earth to be famous. He came to be feared. He came to be worshipped. It is the fear of the Lord, not the notoriety of the Lord, that is the beginning of wisdom. He has no desire to be popular among the people of the world. He wants to be worshipped. There's a huge difference. Deuteronomy 10, beginning in verse 12. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Beloved, when Isaiah came and he saw the Lord high and lifted up upon his throne in Isaiah 6, And he heard the antiphonal praise of the seraphim calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of Almighty, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. His reaction had nothing to do with wanting to make him famous. Instead, his reaction was reverential awe. Soul-terrifying, all-consuming fear of the living God. That's why he said in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Literally, I am disintegrating in the presence of your holy, transcendent glory. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, when you see who Jesus really is, you will see your sin in all of its horror. In Matthew 4, and verse 24, because of his miraculous healings, we see that Jesus' fame spread through Galilee, but they did not worship him. Oh, he was famous. But dear friends, a famous Jesus is a false Jesus. In John 15, we read how the world, Jesus said, is going to hate me, and they're, because they hate my father, they're going to hate you also. Matthew 10, 34, do not think that I came to bring pre- peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. You see, the only Jesus that can be made famous in a world that hates him is a phony Jesus that the world has concocted to get him to serve them. I have no desire to make Jesus famous. Nor are we ever called to do so. We are called to see Jesus feared and worshipped. It's interesting, the very first and foremost request in the Lord's model for prayer 
in Matthew 16, or in Matthew 6, verse 9, is that we petition God, saying, Our Father in heaven, hagiastheto be thy name, hallowed be thy name. In other words, Father in heaven, I want you to sanctify. I want you to separate your name. I want you to make your name holy in all the earth. It's not our Father. We want you to make Jesus famous. Put your holiness on display. Put your character on display. Your character and your reputation must be set apart as holy in this fallen world. And God does this through holy people who proclaim his name. It's interesting as well, in 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says, Hagiaste, sanctify, in other words, revere Christ as Lord in your hearts. In other words, recognize Jesus as Lord in your heart and honor him with all of your life. Be fearless in proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, in order to appreciate the imagery of this psalm, we have to place ourselves in the context of ancient Israel's worship. The wings of the cherubim that is described here were the most conspicuous aspects in the Holy of Holies. They were stretched out over the mercy seat, above the Ark of the Covenant, and they symbolized the protective power of the omnipotent God to shield those who have cast themselves upon his mercy. And those who trust in his saving grace would be protected. Those who commune with him are safe under the protection of his outstretched wings. And folks, you cannot experience that unless you walk in close fellowship with him. I think of now my grandchildren. When when we're out someplace like in a mall or you're out at a zoo or whatever, they love to kind of run wild when they're little. You know how that works. And all of a sudden, something scares them, and what do they do? Oh, my, you're all of a sudden wearing them, right? That's the imagery that we see here. In verse 2, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. I want you to notice the psalmist's personal Appropriation, my, this denotes his intimacy with the Lord, his personal possession. I hope that describes your attitude. Certainly, the man who dwells in the impregnable fortress of God is going to experience this intimate communion with him and be safe. And boy, with the escalating persecution that's coming our way, we all need to be seeking refuge in the fortress of the lover of our soul. (coughs) We move from the psalmist's trust to the psalmist's exhortation in verses 3 through 13. And I want you to notice something here. You won't see it in English, but you will in Hebrew. The, The word you, throughout this section of the psalm, the pronoun you is in the singular, not the plural. So the psalmist is addressing individuals here, focusing on personal trials and personal trust in God. In fact, in verses 3 through 13, you could substitute your name for the word you. For example, verse 3, for it is he who delivers you. Put your name there. 
from the snare of the trapper. And of course, chief among the trappers is Satan who seeks to destroy the wicked as well as the righteous. But here we see that God protects us from those skillful enemies who lie in wait for us. The snares are all around us, right? To tempt us to believe things that are untrue. I think of the new mantra of the cultural Marxists and the LGBTQ perversions. They're constantly saying, quote, silence is violence. Have you heard that? Silence is violence. You see, they're not content to be tolerated and appeased. They insist on being celebrated. Already, companies, and I've heard this from a number of you, companies are having their employees go through diversity training, social justice training, uh, and sign affirmation documents. In fact, um, one man told me this last week that in order to do business with Nashville Metro government, uh, he had to fill out a questionnaire, answer the questions, Uh, And a lot of it had to do with the proper pronouns that he was supposed to use in case he ran into transgenders. I mean, this is sheer insanity. This is absolute, total insanity. Well, what happens if you refuse? And this is where it's going, folks. Ah, dear Christian, remember verse 3. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper. In other words, nothing is going to befall you apart from God's perfect will. Trust in him. He even goes on to say, and from the deadly pestilence. This can refer to horrible diseases, epidemics, plagues that kill millions. It can also be used metaphorically to describe demonic deceptions that seduce the naive and the ignorant. Demonic pogroms, organized killings. Famine, earthquakes, tsunamis, so forth. Verse 4 says, he will cover you with his pinions. In other words, his feathers. And under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. My, how many times have I thanked the Lord for that phrase. Father, thank you for your faithfulness because it is a shield and a bulwark. He uses some interesting figures here. Pinions and wings. These are common Old Testament figures of a bird protecting its young with its wings. You will recall Christ using this in Matthew 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. Sadly, that was true. The unbelieving inhabitants of Jerusalem rejected his protection. They did not trust him, and we know what happened. By the way, we will not always experience deliverance from a trial, but we will always experience joy and the ability to persevere persevere in the midst of the trial, knowing that ultimately God is in it for our good and for his glory. He uses the figure of a shield as well. This is a reference to what a warrior would use. This is, was a, a large standing body shield. We see it used in Psalm 512 and other passages. And also 
the figure of a bulwark. By the way, that comes from a verb that means to surround. And it's sometimes translated as a tower or a wall that encircles or a surrounding fortress wall. And it's the only use of the Hebrew word here in the Old Testament. And then in verses 5 through 6, he provides a fourfold description of some of the perils that we experience, dangers that include human enemies and disease. And by the way, you'll notice in these verses, he uses night, day, darkness, and noon. These are all what we call merisms. Merisms, a figure of speech where a whole of something is substituted by two or more contrasting or opposite parts. So here, night, day, darkness, noon, all of that express a totality. In other words, he's saying that this happens all the time, all the time. Verse 5, you will not be afraid of the terror by night. In other words, those ills that can attack the mind or of the arrow that flies by day. It's also interesting to note here when he says you will not be afraid. This, beloved, is a strong admonition not merely a statement of fact. Here the psalmist uses a strong prohibition, a negative command to emphasize that obedience is expected. He's saying, look, I want you to choose not to be afraid. Live consistently with the truth of who your God is. You will not be afraid of the arrow that flies by day. I'm reminded of Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. He goes on in verse 6, you will not be afraid of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. Now these are just poetic personifications of, of enemies that can attack the mind as well as the body. So you will not be afraid not only because of your confidence in the Lord, but because of the way he ministers to us. We can remain safe even in the midst of an attack, whatever it is. We can experience serenity, and we've all been there before. Paul spoke of this in Philippians 4, right? Remember verse 6, he said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the what? Oh, there it is. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. Can't even explain it. Shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Beloved, to succumb to some type of paralyzing fear in the midst of some great difficulty in your life is frankly a way of impugning the character of God who has said, do not be afraid, trust me. What's well, hard to do in our flesh, isn't it? Verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. My, talk about protection. He's seeing, saying here that, that nothing can reach us apart from his sovereign authorization. It's an amazing thought. He knows what is ultimately needed for our good and for our glory. Verse 8, he goes on to say, you will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. 
In other words, God will recompense the wicked for their sin. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and we merely look on as spectators of his divine judgment. We're not merely survivors here, but we're victors who through Christ are able to trample deadly enemies under our foot. And why? How can this happen? Verse 9, for you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. You have done that. You're trusting in him. And here the psalmist commences, frankly, with a, with a whole new section of the psalm with this emphatic phraseology. And he repeats the terms of some of those divine titles with which he had begun the psalm. Then in verse 10, no evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. By the way, here in Hebrew, the you is emphatic. In other words, to you it will not draw near. The idea here is it will not happen apart from God's permissive will. You see, remember, our God is a sovereign God. He is not a contingent God. He does not look at something and say, oh my, how how do I need to respond here? There's no such thing as a plan B with God. It's always plan A. And we can rejoice in that. Romans 8.28 says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So no calamity can strike us unless God has ordained it for his eternal purposes. Verse 11 and 12, for he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You might recall in Matthew 4, verses 5 through 7, and Luke 4, verses 9 through 12, Satan misquotes these verses and misapplies them, trying to get Jesus to perform a miracle to save himself in the wilderness, you will recall. Jesus responded with Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. (laughs) You know, I'm constantly amazed to know that there is an invisible army of angels dispatched to somehow protect me, to protect you, to protect this church. They're here. We can't see them. They're all around. Who knows what they're up to? Who knows what the enemy is trying to do that they can't do because of them? I often look at our little grandbabies. They have no idea the dangers around them, but we do, and we're guarding them the same type of thing. You will recall how God the Father sent them to minister to Jesus in Matthew 4 after enduring the temptation of the devil in the wilderness. We can all give testimony to somehow, to to those ways where God somehow ministers to us and, and we survive. Verse 13, you will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Now, I've been in Africa. I've seen lions up close, very close. Now, fortunately, I was in a caged Land Rover with a Maasai guide with a 458 up in the front seat. All right? So it's not like I was walking around playing with the lions, but I've seen them. And I've been around lots of serpents. In fact, one time when I was in 
in Kenya, I was able at the end of a teaching, a couple of weeks teaching pastors to go to Masimara for kind of a uh, safari type of thing where you could rest for a week and kind of regain your strength. And, and uh, one night I paid one of the guides to take me out into the jungle area and the plains out there to, um, to see the wildlife at night. Being a hunter, I was interested in all of that. Nobody else wanted to go with me, but it was a fascinating thing because there's so many creatures out there at night that you begin to see, and with the lights, you could you know, find them. And so we're out miles away, and all of a sudden, the Land Rover breaks down. Okay, so now what do you do? Well, they're trying to get the radio to work, you know, to get somebody to come get some help. And so, you know, I sat there for a little while, and finally I got out, and there was grass about waist high, and, and I was just kind of walking around. They said, you know, you need to get back in, in the vehicle because of the snakes. And I made some comment about how, well, I should have brought my snake boots. And they said, no, they bite you in the neck and on the face. The cobras, the black mambas, I mean, these are serious snakes. I heeded their advice. <laughs> but the point that we see here is so clear, isn't it? You will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent, and you will trample down. You see, we are helpless against these kinds of animals. And the point is, you are helpless against the attacks that can come your way. So these are fitting metaphors to describe the deadly nature of our foes. And my, the foes that we have today are far more deadly than those lions or those snakes. Well, then finally, the last section here, we look at the Lord's promise. And here, the pronoun I, God is speaking now, okay? Not the psalmist. God is speaking. And he says something so wonderful here. This just touches my heart. Verse 14, because he has loved me. In other words, this, this, this person, this believer that's hiding in me, because he has loved me, hashach in Hebrew. It's interesting, this word for love is not used typically in, in Hebrew. It occurs only 11 times in Scripture. And the meaning here involves a strong desire and passion. In other words, because this person has a strong desire and passion for me, because this person clings to me, because this person longs to be in fellowship with me. He says, therefore, I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. And beloved, his name encompasses the summation of all of his attributes. So this speaks of the boy or the girl, the man or the woman who clings to the Lord in love and fellowship. This is the one that the Lord blesses. I hope you all have a passion to know and to love the Lord your God. I think of the psalmist in Psalm 42, 1, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, God. The simile there of, of the deer panting is a vivid picture of impending death because of dehydration. I've seen this before in deer and in elk and in moose and in cattle. 
Their tongues begin to hang out and swell in their mouth, and unless they get water soon, they will die. And folks, this is how we must view the life-giving nourishment of the Lord Jesus Christ in fellowship with Him. Those who really understand the grace of God are going to thirst for Him. They're never going to be satisfied with a little bit of who He is. They're going to want to know more. They want to spend more time with Him, sing more songs about Him, share Him more. On and on it goes. That's the idea. And verse 2 went on to say, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I might say that some of you today are terribly dehydrated spiritually. You're not walking in close fellowship with him. You're kind of that cultural Christian. You know a little bit about the Bible. You go to church every now and then, and that's kind of the extent of it. And if that is you, dear friends, you are vulnerable to compromise. Satan is ingenious with his deception. And there are people out there that know error far better than you know truth. And we see this all over the place in evangelicalism today. Back to verse 14, because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. Folks, do you know his name? Do you love him in this way? Verse 15, he will call upon me. By the way, that denotes a fervent prayer life, right? He will call upon me and I will answer him. And will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. A long life, he says. In much of the Old Testament, we read how God would bless obedient, trusting believers with uh, added years for their life. And as we look at Scripture, that extended life would be the result of of a consuming passion for God, as we see here in verse 14a, and truly knowing or experiencing God at the end of that verse, and a fervent prayer life, verse 15. And we know that God presented um, Israel with the choice of life or death in Deuteronomy and other passages. The choice was theirs to make. They were responsible for the outcome. But you know, this is the same choice that wisdom writers Um, depict by two paths. You can either choose a righteous life or an evil life that will result in death, an earlier death. But even as believers today, the promise of a long life extends to us in the sense of ultimate eternal life that is ours. The abiding companionship that we enjoy with God as we fellowship with Him has the crowning gift of eternal glory that is ours by grace. I think of Psalm 23, verse 6. You're familiar with it. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. But it doesn't stop there, right? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want to close with a little story, a testimony of Charles Spurgeon. In the year 1854, he writes, when I had scarcely been in London 12 months, the neighborhood in which I labored was visited by Asiatic cholera, and my congregation suffered from its inroads. Family after family summoned me 
to the bedside of the smitten, and almost every day I was called to visit the grave. I gave myself up with youthful ardor to the visitation of the sick and was sent for from all corners of the district by persons of all ranks and religions. I became weary in body and sick at heart. My friends seemed falling one by one, and I felt or fancied that I was sickening like those around me. A little more work and weeping would have laid me low among the rest. I felt that my burden was heavier than I could bear, and I was ready to sink under it. As God would have it, I was returning mournfully home from a funeral when my curiosity led me to read a paper which was wafered up in a shoemaker's window in the Dover Road. It did not look like a trade announcement, nor was it, for it bore in a good, bold handwriting these words. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague Come nigh thy dwelling. He went on to say, the effect upon my heart was immediate. Faith appropriated the passage passage as her own. I felt secure, refreshed, girt with immortality. I went on with my visitation of the dying in a calm and peaceful spirit. I felt no fear of evil and I suffered no harm. The providence which moved the tradesmen To place those verses in his window, I gratefully acknowledge. And in the remembrance of its marvelous power, I adore the Lord my God. Well, dear friends, may we all have such a consuming passion for the Lord and trust in him in times of trouble. May we learn what it is to abide in him, to dwell in him that we might experience the fullness of joy in the midst of whatever comes our way. A little taste of heaven, right? A little taste of heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these eternal truths that just leap off of the page and address the core of who we are. Lord, we all live here in various ways. For some, it's more severe than others. But Lord, we're thankful that Your faithfulness is our shield and our bulwark. May we reside there every day of our life as we commune with you and celebrate your goodness and grace in our lives. And Lord, for those that might be within the sound of my voice that know nothing of what it is to be in true fellowship with the living God through faith in Christ as their only hope of salvation. I pray that this day you will overwhelm them with the horror of their sin and the glory of the cross that today they might cry out in repentant faith for your mercy and for your grace that you will give so readily. Lord, we commit them to you. We thank you. And we give you praise for all that you have done, are doing, and will do in the lives of the redeemed. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. 
For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.